Whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello, and welcome to the Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Carrie Ginsburg. My guest today is a playwright, filmmaker, storyteller, world builder, port lover, father, husband, brother, son, friend, and all-around good guy. It's Patrick Flynn, everybody. Hey, Carrie. Hi. I know, listeners, you were worried. Don't worry. He's here. I'm here. You're You're safe. You're here. And you are here. We are we are flipping the table. Yes. You were here to talk about Fun Home. Come to the Fun Home. That's the best old funeral home, baby. The best old Fun Home. Next to Dunster Park, the store in Beach Creek. The best old Fun Home. We take dead bodies every day of the week, so you've got no reason to roam. Use the best old funeral home. What it is, what it is. And whatever else, like you know, and honestly, whatever else, and whatever else, yeah, yeah, and whatever, whatever else. else, and whatever. So, else. why did you pick Fun Home? <laughs> Ooh, she's making it her own. So, confession time. Uh, around 2011, what follows is a story about hubris. Um, around 2011, <laughs> I became very sad because I thought that musical theater had gone about as far as it could go uh i was i had been living in la um where there is which is obviously the musical center the musical theater center of the world um and keeping up with the tonys we still watch my wife and i were watching the tonys every year but i had not and i was keeping up with shows and i was listening and i was seeing stuff but i was just experiencing the feeling that every musical that came out even the ones that i really liked were not new they weren't doing anything new it was you mm-hmm. know even and it really hit me with book of mormon which is a show that I, I greatly enjoy but it's it's you know it's sort of it's the best parody musical ever mm-hmm. and i kind of went well this is it like this is the form has kind of reached its apex there's no new creators anymore there's nobody really trying anything new and exciting and different and you know i liked in the heights but i didn't love in the heights and so Lin-Manuel wasn't, you know, and it wasn't apparent to a lot of people. I want to be like, in my opinion, what he was up to. Um, and I just wasn't, I wasn't deeply plugged in either, to be fair. But I was just sort of like, well, this is unfortunate. This is, it's, as I say, gone about as far as it can go. And, and it'll just be what it is. And then in 2014, I saw uh, Ring of Keys on the Tony Awards. On the Tonys. And was just like I, I really like this like I still didn't it didn't you know I wasn't like oh here it is but I was really just like I really really like this song I really really like the people in this show I really like it and I thought okay I'll get that album and I got the album as we always did my wife and I except for the year Jersey Boys won bought the the best <laughs> musical winner every year bought, went out and bought the CD and I bought the album and I put it on and I couldn't stop listening to it and was and went to Kelly and said, we're going to New York to see this, which is not something I had ever said to her about, like, I would always say, like, oh, we have to go see this, or I want to go see this. I said, we're going. Like, we're going to find, we're going to put Bobby at your, at your parents, and we're going to New York, and we're going to see this cast do this show. And we did. 
And it was because it was just miraculous. It was amazing to me. And it was really like being reborn. It was this feeling of like, oh, I'm an idiot. Of course, the form isn't dead, like the form or, or just stagnating. It just there there's always people doing new things and new exciting things. And it really was that great reminder of that. And then it also coincided with me sort of making theater my primary focus, moving away from doing films and web content and really being like, I want to write plays. That's what I want to do. So those two things happened almost exactly at the same time. And Fun Home is like a show that's still like, this is amazing. This is incredible and, and, uh, and lovely and wonderful, beautiful and heartbreaking and gorgeous. And I love every single note, every single second of the show and the album and the script and the, and the book it's based on. Read, having read the book and then also read How I Met Your... Or not How I Met Your Mother. The book is called Are You My Are Mother? Are You My Mother? Yeah, which is a phenomenal book. And yes. uh, yeah, it just the completely changed... Novel. Graphic novel. And it com- completely changed me as a person, just where I was headed as an artist and as a human. So yes, that's the short answer. <laughs> and so before we go much further, can you tell everybody what is Phone Home about? Sure. Fun Home is actually very succinctly summed up. It is one of the th- moments at the Tony Awards that got me like sitting up straight that when Beth Malone says... Caption. My dad and I both grew up in the same small Pennsylvania town, and he was gay, and I was gay, and he killed himself. And I became a lesbian cartoonist. It is the story of Alison Bechtel, uh real-life lesbian cartoonist, reflecting on her relationship with her father, Bruce Bechtel, who is the actual lead of the musical, um, in three main phases of her life, uh, when she is 43, the same age he was when he died, when she is 18 and just arrived at college and coming into her own as a person and also her own sexual awakening, and then when she is um, eight, nine years old and sort of first realizing that the world isn't exactly... It's the first time she starts to have adult ideas about how the world works and who her father is. And, you know, it's the sort of phases of trying to connect with her father, losing the connection with her father, and then reinstating the connection with her father because they are so similar and yet so very, very different. And her trying to understand who her father was... And mm-hmm. um, like I say, the narratives, we jump around in time all over the place among those three different stories until they all kind of fall on, collide with each other at the very, at the climax of the show. Mm-hmm. And she achieves some kind of catharsis at the end with the relationship with her dad, who she was and who she's going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Judy Kuhn's in it. Long may she reign. Long may she reign. And for those of you following along at home, you may start drinking, mm-hmm. uh, but pace yourselves because <laughs> we should have a drinking game for this episode. <laughs> She's going to pop up a couple of times, isn't she? Definitely. I mean, do we want to start by talking about Judy or do oh. we want to circle back to, oh, yes, let's I love let's her so start. much. I don't. I love Judy Q <laughs> so much. I love her as a performer. It was a thrill to see her in this. Judy Q was the first Broadway actress I recognized by her voice. When I got Chess, which Uh was sort of my, like, one of my albums of, like, an awakening for me as a music theater fan. And I heard her sing on that album, and I went, that voice sounds very, very familiar, and I can't figure out why. And after a little while, I went, that sounds a lot like Cosette. And I went and got the cassette we had of Les Mis and opened it up and went, yep, that's the same person. And then she popped up again on the cast album for Sunset Boulevard. And I was just like, well, this person's amazing and, and does all kinds of great stuff. And and so since then, I've just been so excited to 
find her and things and um yeah and her her saying color of the wind obviously when i was in high school and uh yeah but i just i love i love her she has tremendous presence even in just her voice she gets onto a track and you just she owns that track and every single thing she does and i'm so sad she didn't win a tony award for the show because i really yeah. felt she deserved it um and but there she were... she plays helen she plays helen bechtel yes the, the allison's mother, mother. Mm-hmm. yes who is <laughs> who has her own like emotional painful journey in this show do you want Just, to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Helen has um, Helen is a really interesting character um, in the musical because she's very di- very tiny character in the book, and mm. I feel one of the great things that Lisa Crone did when she adapted the the script to be uh, to be the musical took a lot of material from Are You My Mother, which is a much longer book and a much deeper dive into the relationship because obviously Helen Bechtel being alive, there mm-hmm. was a lot more material to draw from. Um, but Allison and her mother have very complicated relationship, and uh, they they drew a lot of material from from that book and from Fun Home to create a much fuller character and give her a lot to do and a lot to comment on and a lot of as this creating a picture of what kind of woman would stay with a man like this uh, who is abusive certainly verbally and uh, to her and as we learn in the book physically abusive to the children. And is just a complicated and terrible at times human. And Judy and and the character and the writing for by Lisa really give the character so much depth. And you understand that they stay together for a lot of reasons. But ultimately, at the end, they stay together because they didn't break up. Like that song, Days, that she sings yes. that you sang at the live show, which you, uh, listeners can listen to now, um, is such an expression of just like it just time just passes by and you have the good times and the bad times and the good times can kind of make get you through the bad times and then at some point it does become enough because in the in the book she and the musical she does leave him she does announce that she's leaving him it's one of the reasons speculated reasons that he uh, that Allison says he commits suicide which is a contentious issue whether or not Bruce actually committed suicide in real life. In the play, it's very overt that he really committed suicide. But there's a lot of disagreement in Allison's family as to whether or not he killed himself intentionally. He steps in front of a truck. Yes. And That's in real life, he leapt in front of a truck backwards. He was sort of yeah. off the side of the road and this truck was coming along. And he kind of, the driver described it as he like he was jumping away from a snake. Like he just leapt backwards into the road. and the guy. Oh my word, I didn't know that. That's terrible. Yeah. Um, and Allison and her mother believe that he killed himself and actually one of the reasons that they had a rift in their relationship was because allison talked publicly and wrote about the fact that he killed himself which helen wanted more kept private mm-hmm. um yeah complicated and her brothers both don't think he killed himself they take a very much more hard line with that sort of thing mm-hmm. so you mentioned in your very succinct um yet deep synopsis of the play that it is i thought it non- might come up so i prepared <laughs> it's like you knew the it's types like of know. questions yeah. uh i would ask <laughs> while making it my own um so you mentioned that it's non-linear story you're telling mm-hmm. and so you saw ring of keys on the tony awards and then you listened to the original cast album and then you saw it 
Mm-hmm. Did you it when you listened to the album? Did you understand the story that was being told and the time periods that were jumped around? Oh yeah. Or did it not lock in until you saw? It? Okay. No, it's very obvious from the album. It's it's an album that's so well put together um, and so well produced that it is really its own kind of seventy minute version of the show. It doesn't mm-hmm. give you everything, but it, it it puts a lot of dialogue and connective tissue in there where you can understand. The leaps that 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 Allison takes you between small Allison and medium Allison to get you from, you know, being nine to being in college and back again and the present songs and, and things like that. I also in between that did read the book. I got the book before and read it before I went to see the show. Um, and there are a lot of little moments in the album, but, the, but that are also in the show that are big explicit moments in the book, big sections of the book, which are sort of reduced to tiny lines of dialogue or little throwaway sections, which are nice for people who've read the book to be like, oh, I, there's a great throwaway line during the fight, I think right before uh, Raincoat of Love, mm-hmm. uh, where Judy screams. Hey, my mom, for dinner, I'm throwing it in the toilet. That's like a whole section of the book where they have, she describes this argument her parents had that involved her mother throwing spaghetti in the toilet. And so it's a great like line to, for the people who've read the book to be like, oh yeah, I, re- I remember that. It brings you into the world. But it's also such an evocative line for an audience mm-hmm. member to be like, whoa, that escalated quickly. As medium That's Allison. also a little bit of mom logic, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I'm so mad at you. I'm just going to say this thing. And everyone mm-hmm. goes like, should I laugh? Should I right, run right. and should hide? I, yeah. And it is great. I like how their relationship is explored a lot through small Allison in the sense that the book is very overt about the 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 relationship that Helen and Bruce had and uh because it's all written by 43 year old Allison who has all this information but the the musical presents it really through small Allison's eyes who doesn't exactly know what's going on mm-hmm. and so she's just sort of sitting there watching the partridge family hearing all this in the background and kind of shutting it out as much as she possibly can and focusing in trying to focus in on the partridge family and then imagining that she's um in the in the Partridge family. So you've you've talked about Alison Bechtel, who wrote her Dykes to Watch Out for a comic strip from 1983 to 2008, and it mm-hmm. was very renowned. Um, yes. And she she talked about her life experiences through that comic strip, but it was also observational. Um, but she really sort of crashed into a little bit more of the mainstream in 2006 with the publication of Fun Home, the graphic novel, and mm-hmm. then the follow up of 2012, Are You My Mother? Uh, and so. In 1985 is when the world had its first introduction to the Bechdel-Wallace test or the Bechdel mm-hmm. test. The Bechdel test, yes. You you are familiar with the Bechdel I'm test? I'm very familiar. I teach the Bechdel test when I when So I teach. tell the listeners what is the Bechdel test? The Bechdel test, which she will be the first to tell you, she didn't actually create. She just published it and, yes. like in her comic and then uh, as a result got credit for it. Um, is something that I think a, a woman she was dating came up with, which was uh, that she would only see movies that had at least two named female characters who at any point in the movie spoke to each other about some anything other than a man. And it is a really... 538 has a great graph on it of movies that have passed or failed, the like percentage of movies that pass and failed the Bechdel test by year. Mm-hmm. and Or even maybe it's by decade, but whatever it is, it's not as like... It's not as great as you might think right now. Like, it's it's much better now than it was. Um, and actually, what's hilarious is that there was a huge spike of it, actually, when you and I were, were sort of coming up in uh, the indie film boom in the mid-90s and then mm. in the early 2000s. There's a big spike in movies that pass the Bechdel test because there's so many different people making movies about so many different things. 
and then it tapered back down again. And it's kind of on the rise because it's very, I think people are very aware of it, but it is, um, it is, yeah, it's, it's atrocious how few <laughs> movies, plays, anything passes this very simple test. Very, very simple test. So does Fun Home the Musical pass the Bechtel test? That's a good question. And the answer is yes, uh, because Medium Allison and uh, Joan talk about the posters that she's making. Yeah. Look at me pulling that out of my butt. <laughs> you did not. That was good. I agree. Good, because right? yeah. I, when I was re-listening to the cast album this evening while making dinner, I listened to it through the Bechdel test mm -hmm. lens. And I thought, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. And then where is that? Like. It's right before um, changing my major to Joan. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's a, that's a, 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 like a third of the way, uh, just under half of the way through the musical mm -hmm. uh, that we get to that moment. So that was very startling. I was just curious. So uh, Lisa Crone wrote the books and lyrics. Yes, she did. And she was um, not super well known as a book writer and lyricist before this. I don't think she'd ever written lyrics before this. She'd certainly been a playwright and an actress. Um but there's she and Janine Tesori talked about actually there was a period where they didn't think she she wanted to be the lyricist. She was the one with the rights. Yes. And um, she was definitely going to write the book. That was never in question. But there was a period where she wanted to write the lyrics and it was sort of unclear whether she could or not. And she wrote several drafts of lyrics for songs and it wasn't going well. And Janine Tesori very candidly sort of like I couldn't help her. I couldn't tell her why these lyrics weren't good. Or weren't music theater lyrics. That's what she kept mm -hmm. saying. They're like, they're they're not music theater lyrics. And then at one point, she doesn't say what the song was. It just clicked. And she wrote, they wrote a song and it really worked. And then from then on, it, it went very, very well. Um, and I'm glad it did. I'm glad the two of their, it's the two of them who wrote this and they didn't get a third uh, person in there because there's a way the book and the lyrics and the score flow in this show that you don't see very often. And it's very hard to achieve the more collaborators you add to the writings team, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? When everybody's kind of more guarding their corner of the store, it sort of helps a lot, especially to have, I think, composer and librettist mm -hmm. so that the two are always working together in a very direct capacity instead of even like music and lyrics and book where you're kind of two, doing two different things. And yes, you collaborate unless you work together, but it's not quite the same sort of collaboration. I think the show really benefits from having a composer and a librettist. Mm -hmm. Um who are who just always putting themselves together. And when you go see the show, or at least when you saw the Broadway production, there, there was no song list in the, in the playbill. In the playbill. Yeah, there was nothing to delineate. The songs were only named when the album came out. Um, for Why does that happen? Why, does which, which, why don't they have the songs in the playbill? Yeah, mm -hmm. why are they not um, named until the album? Well, I, well, they may have been named before that, but they weren't named sort of in print, uh, I think, officially before that. But it is... I think they're they're not in the. I mean, it's the way I would do a playbill if you if I was allowed to, um, because I don't. One of the things I don't like about having the songs in the playbill is the same reason I love having the songs in the playbill, which is I get to see where I am, mm -hmm. and I get to see how much longer this is going on. Uh, but that's bad. I don't want that to be. You know, you don't want your audience to sort of be reading the playbill. You want them to be watching the show. I think the other reason is, like I say, the songs come in and out of scenes. So, like, if you name, you, also when you look at the album, not every song has a name. They're sort of like scene names or, or yeah. tag names because there's a lot of little tiny songs that just like, like Helen's Etude, which is basically just the line. Maybe not right now. 
Maybe not right now. Which mm-hmm. comes back here all over the place and to beautiful effect. Doesn't really, like, that's not a, that's just a musical phrase, really. It's kind of reprised a couple times, but it's more of a theme than a song, per se. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of moments of that where songs just seamlessly come out of the scene and then dr- the scene goes back into the dialogue and there's no real, there's no reason to name that song. So I think one of the reasons they didn't do it was because it was tricky. And then another reason is it doesn't stop. You don't really don't want people looking down because if they look down to read their playbill, they're going to get lost in some particularly of the parts of the show. at Circle in the Square, which is where this was. Yes, where this was performed, right? Yeah, There's, yeah. Because it is in the round. If you Very are not watching, so. you will lose track of where you are supposed to look. Yeah, and they did a really nice job. Um, I mean, with the set coming in and out of the floor, as you can do on a Broadway set. But it, yes, it's very easy to get lost in terms of where you are in, in it, not only in location, but in time. I mean, this thing pops all over the place and you do have Allison, you know, Beth Malone in this recording in the show who never leaves the stage. She's always right. on the stage guiding you around this thing. But it is really easy to be like, I, where are we? Who is that? Why? And also you have Joel Perez who plays a lot of anonymous guys, some of yeah. whom Bruce picks up, some of whom he doesn't. And so if you sort of looked at him and he does, I mean, he did a great job in his performances, costumes and all that, but it's still the same, clearly the same guy going like, wait, is that somebody Bruce is cheating on Helen with? Or is that just a guy who's there for the funeral or is it, you know, so like if you look down in this show, you're, you're not going to make it, <laughs> you're not going to make it back. Um, so that's just, I think just to keep people out of the playbill. And I also just think they didn't, they, it, it really feels like, it doesn't feel like a traditional musical in the sense of scene, song, scene, song. It's much more just one big piece mm-hmm. um kind of like the way next to normal is to me a little bit like it just sort of heaves itself at you <laughs> in in a very real way Full lunge yes Full, just just a total <laughs> attack and uh it, yeah that's sort of so that's why i think they probably didn't list the musical numbers in the show I, you know it's it's interesting that you say that too because i know when i have seen uh productions that are like out of town tryouts right they're still finessing they're still working like mean girls when we saw it when it was mm-hmm. at the national theater there would there was no song list in that playbill because between one day and another yeah there the musical could have changed yeah so there's um, no point yeah so i think it's i think it's interesting that in the original broadway production there was no song list in the playbill so the other person of this creative powerhouse is mm-hmm. janine tesori um and she was like hot off the success of that seminal musical shrek shrek the musical <laughs> yes and then fun home arrived to us but she's yeah. had uh she's had a bit of an eclectic she is herself. she is a it was funny to become a fan of the show and go what else have i seen these these people do and i did was somewhat familiar with lisa crone um but looked up Janine Tesori and went, oh, I've heard all of these shows and I like a lot of them. Uh, you know, like, I mean, obviously Thoroughly Modern Millie being a, a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, Shrek is a good show. It, I really, Bobby and I watched it on Netflix, like the, you know, with Brian Darcy James and Sutton oh, yes. Foster. And I was really shocked how good the show, the musical was. It's certainly better than the movie. It's fun. Yeah. It's just, that's the thing is it just, it. she's real. I think she's really good. I mean, Violet is also a tremendous show. Violet yes. is on the same with with Fun Home as like her epic uh, achievements and composition, but and and Carolina Change obviously. Mm-hmm. But she's she's such a great. She so knows the material. She really knows like oh this is this kind of show, so it's going to sound like this, and this is thoroughly modern Millie, so it's a flapper show, so it's going to sound like this, and it, and it mm-hmm. really she's she's really really good at that kind of chameleon thing, which I so respect, and it's really great. I think that she rarely works with the same people 
uh, more than once. She has a lot of different collaborators for lyricists and, and, and book writers. And I think that adds to her eclecticism. She doesn't have a partner that she works with who knows her tricks and they sort of write to each other. She floats from project to project, finding things that are interesting or probably that will pay. And, uh, you know, let's be honest, and uh, and does a great job at them, takes them on fully and seriously and, and wonderfully. And it, yeah, I just absolutely love her music. Yeah, me too. I agree. I agree. I'm interested to see what's next from her. She uh, had an off-Broadway run of her new show, Soft Power, in 2019 that I think was about to transfer. To Robin, yeah, was that the show she did with David Henry Huang? I, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's, yes, that's obviously in... in Limbo, and of course, there was supposed to be a revival of Carolina Change on Broadway right now. We shall see. We shall. So we talked about Beth Malone. We talked about Judy Kuhn. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Michael Severus. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. He is. Oh, God, is he good in this show. (laughs) So if you don't know him from Fun Home, you might know him from, I don't know, some little shows like. Tommy, Tommy, Titanic, Assassins, Sweeney, yeah, um, Sweeney with Evita. Patty, Evita, yeah, with not, with not with Ricky Martin, not with Patty. Oh no, um, no, yeah, yeah. Uh, continuing the tradition of casting a Juan Perón that makes you go really, because <laughs> it's always when you list the cast members of, of the big three and of, of every production of Evita, it's two, it's the Che and Evita go very well together, and the the Juan Perón is always like Bob Gunton. <laughs> Joss Ackland? I think maybe that's the point. Okay. I do kind of think it is the point. And it's it's also always the one who's the especially Bob Gunton is the only one doing an accent. <laughs> Everybody else is just kind of rocking and rolling and and uh, Bob Gunton's like, "No, I am I am Argentinian." I think that's the metaphor. Let's go with that. Let's go with metaphor. He is transformative in this show though. This was a Michael Severus is Michael transformative. Severus is transformative. It's not Bob Gunton. Show. Not Michael Bob Gunton or Ricky yeah. Martin. Yeah. Um it was uh, seeing him sing "Edges of the World." I think oh. is what it, what it was like to see Len Caro do "Epiphany" or or um, one of those other like just seminal song show actor combinations where it is just that is a hard song that changes direction fifty times, mm-hmm. and he it just felt so grounded. Um, a lot of which he attributes to his wig, which I think is pretty funny because he's, he's a bald man. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, he has to wear this very specific wig as, uh, as um, Bruce, who has very specific nice hair. Um, and he did really, like when I read this interview with him where he explains like how the wig was a big part of the character, I remembered how many times he like plays with this little tiny curl of hair that he has. And it's funny to think like he's kind of wearing a hat, like that he can, it's like it's not part of him, but it's definitely part of the character. Yeah. And it was so that was really interesting. But yeah, I mean, he's just you love him and you hate him almost at the same time. And he did a really good. That's a hard part. That is a really hard role who says some terrible things to his daughter and also some tender things to his daughter. And you're just you got to you got to accept them both because she obviously is reconciling them both. Mm-hmm. That letter that, makes... that he sends her at college. Oh, yes. Oh, by the way, we got your letter. Well, kid, talk about a flair for the dramatic. As far as I see it, the good news is you're human. What does that mean? What else would I be? And she reacts to it appropriately, which is horribly hurt. 
Yes. Yeah. Well, she should be horribly hurt, yeah. especially especially through the lens of memory, mm-hmm. knowing now what she didn't know then, right? So right. her dad is gay. Yeah. I would have expected something else. And it's almost, to me, hearing him just be like, don't, don't, just yeah. be cool. Right. Don't say anything. Just don't, yeah. don't talk about don't it. Don't put a label on it. Don't, uh, yeah. That, to me, was also an indicator of his inability to live as he truly wanted to oh sure and, and he, he was again oppressing that on yeah. to allison and then he never really can i mean he never he never can even after helen tells her everything yes and accepts her for who she is sort of not i mean it's not totally she's still i think a little weirded out by what's going on but she's definitely more meets meets allison on the level yes um is very very open about her dad and who he is and and their relationship and how long she's known about it and and things like that and is even after that even after Allison knows everything and even after Helen has said we're getting divorced and like I can't do this anymore he still can't fully open up to her as much as she wants as much as she needs and as much as he needs frankly yeah um and it culminates, of course, in in Telephone Wire, which is just like the saddest, cryingest thing. I cry. I mean, honestly, listening, re-listening to this album to record this episode, I cried about five times. And it is that is the song that just breaks me in half every time I listen to it. Because I think we've all been there. Yeah. Where you look back on a moment. If you ever have known somebody who has died suddenly and unexpectedly, especially violently, you look back on you probably remember the last time you saw them and you didn't know it was going to be the last time you saw them and you do definitely have those moments where you sort of think back on it and go say something you know it's just you should you should have i should have said something i should have said anything and i should have done something i should have you know all that and i really what i really love in that song and the thing that breaks my heart because it is the growth that allison goes through in that song it's so interesting that to have a, a song where she's trapped in the past and they can't change it. She can't save her dad. She can't, you know, that's never, it, it, she's just sitting in the car with him. Um, and I just yep. want to point out, so mm-hmm. it's, it's in the timeline mm-hmm. of the musical. Yes. Medium Allison is going to go on a car ride with Bruce. Right. And in the theatricality of the musical. In the show too. It is so scary because regular Allison is on the stage the whole time, like I say, and both medium Allison and, and regular Allison are on the stage and Bruce turns, looks at medium Allison and then turns to regular Allison and says that line, Allison, are you ready to go for that ride? And you see, I mean, Beth Malone will kill you in that scene. She just absolutely withers because she doesn't want to get in the car. And it, yes. it is, and then medium Allison's gone. And it being in the round is also this magic of this exit where she's suddenly not there anymore. She's gone. And, you just realize that she's got to get in the car. Yes. And so medium a, Allison yeah, is sort of tagged ride. out and big Allison or just Allison, Allison is in the car with Bruce. So she has this opportunity as an adult to confront her father who is still not in the same world as her. Right. And so can't. She sort of tries well, yes. to in a moment. And it just doesn't do anything because he's not really there. It's, it's a memory. But I do like the growth she goes through in that song. It's such an interesting choice to have her have a breakthrough in that song. Yes. Where she's sort of pushing herself, saying... Telephone wire, long black line. Telephone wire, 
finely threaded sky. There's the pond where I went wading. There's a sign for Sugar Valley. On the mountain, light is fading. I go back to school tomorrow. Say something, talk to him. Say something, anything. At the light, at the light, at the light, at the light. At the light, at the light, at the light, at the light. Doesn't matter what you say. And then she never does it. But when she finally flips out and says, I might cry telling you about it. When she flips, it, it all turns around and she goes, Telephone wire, stop too fast. Telephone wire, make this not the past. This car ride, this is where it has to happen. There must be some other chances. There's a moment I'm forgetting. recognizing that it's not her responsibility to talk to him. She's the child. He's supposed to talk to her. That's the deal. Like she's she's he's the parent. Say something. You you know, this is an equal we both screwed up in this moment. Maybe I should have said something to you, but you should have said something to me. You should have opened it up and let me in. And it is really the breakthrough for her, I think for the character that allows her to face her father's death. And really, to look at it and go, this was useless. You should not have died. This was dumb. You should you should still be alive. And there's no reason you shouldn't still be alive. It's your fault. You killed yourself. I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I'm you know I feel all kinds of things about it, and that's okay. I mm-hmm. feel guilty. I feel responsible. But ultimately, you made a decision, and I will never fully understand why you did it. But you know, here we are, and I'm okay. You know. She has that moment of like, we had the relationship we had, it is what it is at the end. And she's, it ends with that great moment, just like the book does, of them playing airplane and small Allison is up over him flying. And that's kind of the, that's the best. That's the best memory she has of her dad. And that's all she's going to get. It's not going to get a better memory than that. No. Yeah. What is your favorite song? It's Telephone Wire. My favorite, well, I have to do, if, if Telephone Wire is my favorite song, I admire the writing of Edges of the World. I could never to write a song like that is amazing but the song on the recording I love the best recorded song on the show is Raincoat of Love <laughs> today I woke up with a feeling that I did not recognize oh our happy life seemed far away and everything was made of lies the sky was turning dark when baby I looked in your eyes and that's when I knew which is honestly not a song that I loved until I saw the show. Because it does on the album kind of pop out of nowhere and it, it, it's fun, you know what I mean? You kind of get it and it's a neat bop and it's, it's great. But the recording of it is remarkable, especially if you listen to headphones on it. Listen to the drums on Raincoat of Love. You are like a raincoat made out of love. produced just blows me away and these drums that do I mean, the drumming in the show is great from top to bottom but the way the drum rolls are written and then recorded for that song just absolutely blow me away 
And it's something we never talk about on the show, and I always wish we would. <laughs> well, now you've had the opportunity. I know. Damn it. Let's talk about producing cast albums, which is why there I started you go. this show. I know nothing about this, so, like, Nobody educate does. me. Nobody does. Well, if you want that to be a prerequisite for conversation, you just need to let people know. I'm sure I people can't. would be happy to prepare no, to satisfy no, no, you. No, 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 People get so nervous about doing things. The, the number one it's response true. I get is, um, I don't know a lot about cast albums or about Broadway. And I always have to be like, that's fine. You don't have to. You can do this show and not know as much as me. I don't know as much as a lot of the people I've had on this show. Um because it's not supposed to be about, you know, it, it's nerding out about theater, definitely, but it's not supposed mm-hmm. to be about, like, you know, the way Goddard Lieberstein produced cast albums versus Thomas C. Shepard as much as, God, I wish it was. <laughs> <laughs> and I've tried to have those conversations with people, and they just don't sustain. I don't know why, but, like, because even people I have on who have produced cast albums or know a lot about production of cast albums, we always end up kind of going, yeah, that's cool. And then that's it. But like, how no... else would you want those conversations to go? I don't honestly know. Uh, I just, I thought when I started the show, that's what we would talk about. And, and listening to Tracy's episode last week, it was, I, you can hear me kind of trying to get us to talk about it. Because I bring up the fact that the Charlie Brown cast album was recorded in a hall, like not in a studio. And yeah. we all kind of go, oh, that's neat. And then it just doesn't go anywhere. And I, I, I don't, there might not be more there, there. But the, the, one of the reasons I started the show was that I am fascinated by this totem that only exists for musicals. There's a lot of things that make musicals different than plays, than, than any other format. Mm-hmm. Stage musicals. And one of them is the fact that to this album, any cast album, isn't the show... And it isn't a soundtrack. Right. It's this third thing where all the actors got together with the musicians and went into a studio and sort of did a summary of the score or a portion of it or something, you know, and created this whole other art form that has its own own art to it. Producing mm-hmm. a cast album, a good cast album, is not easy. And a lot of the cast albums that I listen to especially produced around that period of time where I was becoming disenchanted when people were kind of, there was this period that came up where like they were making C like they, there was this idea that the cast album had to fill the CD. It had to be 80 minutes of music mm-hmm. and they don't, you know, they don't have to be all the score and the extended dance tracks and stuff like that really doesn't make for a great album all the time. It makes for a long album and it, but it, it felt like, the, the old school of producing albums, which was the sort of like, we've only got 45 minutes, so we've got to really like make it songs and songs and songs, um, became then this idea of like, no, let's just record literally every piece of music written for this show and then just throw it all out there because that's, you know, that's what we can do. But does that have to do with the medium on which the album was produced? So like... I want to have this conversation with you mm-hmm. and I know nothing about this. So sure. if these are like ignorant questions, please forgive me. Um, Cause I don't have the vocabulary for it. So, so for example, originally people were listening to, to cast albums on records mm-hmm. or actually they were probably listening to opera and operata on wax press, but then it was records. Yeah, but then it was records. Yeah. And there's only so much landscape on a record. Mm-hmm. Then you have the introduction of audio cassette, which gives you a little bit more flexibility. You can record on both sides. So that gets you, Mm-hmm. 120 minutes i don't know and then uh, yeah about an hour still about an hour with a good cassette yeah and then and then you have cds right 
So you're starting to compress more media into this little flexible thing. I mean, is that is that sort of tracking the physical representation of the album? Does that track with your let's do some, let's do all? It does. So partially it has to do with revivals. I feel mm -hmm. like like one of the reasons to make a revival cast album like the 92 Guys and Dolls cast album is because we can record the entirety of the Crapshooters dance, which was never recorded before. So there is a certain idea of like, we can record more. This album will be different than the first one, like significantly right. different. It'll be bigger. It'll have more to it. Um, but there is also, to me, a sense of what I call... Uh, uh, we paid for the van, we're going to film it. There's this sort of like including something just because you paid for it doesn't make it good. Like we, it costs us the same amount of money to record every single piece of music in that same time period as mm -hmm. it does to record just the stuff that would make a really good album. And it doesn't cost any more to produce because we're just producing the CDs. You know, it just, mm -hmm. it, we just kick them on out. So why not record everything and then fit as much as we possibly can onto the album instead of thinking about what would make this a really good cast album. It's a big difference you can see going way back to the difference between the way Columbia Records produced cast albums and the way Capitol Records produced it. When you have albums like Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which is a great score with a good cast, but if you listen to that album, it sounds very sloppy. It sounds tinny. Yeah, and also like Zero Mistel isn't always hitting his notes. He isn't always holding his breath. And you got the sense that like, whatever, we got it. Who cares? Yeah. Pretty little masterpiece. But then if you take Zero Mistel and put him in Fiddler, which was done on Columbia by Goddard Lieberson, it is a wonderfully sonic experience where the songs feel very contained and every and he's giving a really good performance do you love me i'm your wife i know but do you love me and they're two very different shows there's a lot of differences between them but it, it is there's this sense uh, even way back when of this album as commodity or art form. But are people still buying a thing or are they buying files? That is unknown uh, from what I understand. It's still very unclear what the future of the cast album is in, in great peril um, to be entirely honest. And it kind of always is like, uh, I don't want to be too hyperbolic. Like you will, it's always been in trouble and it will always be in trouble, but everyone's going to streaming and there is no money in streaming for the creators. So, mm -hmm. you know, the number of times you have to stream one track, you know, the number of times you have to stream um, Waving Through a Window to make that album pay is insane. You, you, you won't ever do it. No one will ever stream enough to get the royalties back to the people who made the album to pay for it. So mm -hmm. the, the only model that makes any sense with cast albums is people buying the entire album. Now, I think uniquely cast albums have the advantage that people will want to buy the whole album because they love the show. You know, people will buy the show. But yes. even if it, if we stop producing the physical media, if you're just getting it online, it's still caught. I mean, Actors Equity Rule says you have to pay the actors a week's salary for every day of recording on a cast album. That's a lot of money. That and is a lot of money. they deserve it. I'm not saying they don't deserve it, but like that right there, there's a cost. And then you got to pay the musicians and then you got to mix it and then you got to do it. And that's another reason why cast albums now are not recorded with everybody in one big room running through the whole song. Everyone's recorded one at a time. 
so that you limit the number of takes and then you just put it all together in Pro Tools later and it's producing an album that way that sounds as good as the Fun Home album does is not easy and a lot of the albums sound isolated. They sound like karaoke albums. They sound sort of distant and it, it's a shame. And um, is that how Fun Home was recorded or was it everybody would, in a big room together? I believe every, it was recorded separately. It would make the most sense uh, financially. It's also been done twice. It was done, the album that we have that is the Broadway cast album, which is the reason it's not called the original Broadway cast recording is because it's actually the off-Broadway cast recording with um, the new song that was added um, which is the reprise of Helen's Etude. I can't remember what it's called on the album, but it's the one where Bruce tries to get uh, Small Allison to wear a dress. I despise this dress. What's the matter with boy shirts and pants? You're a girl. This dress makes me feel like a clown. I hate it. That's enough. We're late. You're wearing a girl color? Oh, uh, yes. Which is not in the original Off-Broadway. There was a song called Al for short, which is a riot of a song. Hey, hey, how you doing? Oh, For short, hey, yo, yeah, this is my Mustang convertible. Yeah, I found it at the dump. Pow, I fixed it up myself. Plan, I'm on a ride. I'm going to Paris. No, all right. See you later, yeah. Uh, but does a very different thing emotionally. And then the other big change from Broadway to off Broadway was um, they recast Medium Allison. So they had her come in and re and sing all of those songs. And dub her into sections, and I imagine the only way that fully works is if they, um, if they had it isolated, and it just—it's the way it's always done. There aren't the big studios to put everybody in anymore; mm-hmm. they don't exist in New York. Uh, the last cast album I know for a fact did it with everybody in one room was the Daniel Radcliffe revival of How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, and they didn't have a big studio; they recorded in a theater because they couldn't fit everybody in the room any other way. So. You know, that's the the sort of you watch the you know original cast album company documentary. They don't have that studio is not not there anymore <laughs> to do mm-hmm. those giant things. You know, there's a, a few that still exist for like classical recording, but they're few, far between, and very expensive. That's too bad. Yeah. yeah. So, part of your reason for starting this podcast, Patrick, was to nerd out about the actual engineering of cast albums. Yes, and thank you for letting me do that finally after. No, years. I'm glad to have this conversation. It's it's interesting, and it's yeah. Cast albums, cast recordings are such a big part of so many people's lives. Not only oh, the yeah. people who have been on this podcast, but people who consume it. Oh yeah. Um, and so, I think it's a worthwhile conversation for people to understand, sort of how it yeah how the sausage gets made yeah yes mm-hmm. let's go make the donuts and right. and how it how it reflects sort of the indis the business of theater mm-hmm. yes which we don't talk about enough i've said that a number of times on the show but we do not talk about the business side of of making this art enough not enough yeah. people know how it how it actually works yeah mm-hmm. so were there other reasons that drove you to start a podcast yeah, uh, there were several. I, I first thought that I should, it's it's a funny thing, but I just thought I should have a podcast. I know how to do it. I know how to record audio. I have a lot of, I had a lot of the equipment already when we got started. I had access to it. Mm-hmm. We originally recorded this uh, at American University at the Media Production Center, which is where we recorded your episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew how to edit it. And I, I just knew how to make it. And I thought I should be utilizing that skill. Uh, so that was one reason, but I didn't know what I wanted to have a podcast about. And then 
so I just sort of had that idea in the back of my mind that I should have a podcast. Okay. And then one day I thought of, I had a question about a cast album in my mind and I thought there's probably a cast album podcast. Like there just has to be. And I went and looked and there wasn't. And I went, well then I, that's my opening. <laughs> I have to do it because it's so rare. You go on the internet and, and think like, Oh, this has to exist. And it doesn't. You kind of yeah. feel like, don't tell anybody, nobody move. I'm going to start it right now. How can I get this to going? And it was, it was really fast. It was like from the moment I decided to do it to recording Tracy's episode was like two weeks. I was just like, we're going to do this. We're going to figure this out. And then it took about another month and a half before I, because re- I think I recorded five episodes before I released the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I didn't want to start recording the show and then run out of shows like record release and then have nothing, which is another reason I, I do, um, bi-weekly because it's mm-hmm. much easier to book 26 guests than 52. Mm-hmm. So though not so lately, since episodes- I've gone to daily has been, <laughs> yeah. So you're a hundred episodes in. You've got guests, dozens yeah. of intermissions, our distantly yeah. socials. Yes, I know. Uh, uh, Patreon patron, original cast at the movies. Yeah. Um, a couple of awesomeathons under your belt, plus guest appearances on other podcasts, yeah. such as Broadway Sid and mm-hmm. Broadway Baby. Yeah. What have you learned? Whoa. I have found where I belong. I don't know what's so funny is people tell me all the time when I ask them to be on the show or if they listen to the show like how do you know all that stuff about theater and I first say I edit the show so we can look it up and then edit out the part where we look it up and you think it's I'm true. brilliant there's a lot of I google it, typing that people do it here. all the time and I tell the <laughs> guests that I'm like frankly we can do this whenever we want um but the other thing is like you think I know a bunch, like sitting in the room with the Broad Wasted gang, I don't know half the stuff they know. Now, they don't know a lot of the stuff I know. Like I have an old, my, my, my music theater knowledge is older than theirs. I know a lot about older music shows. I know a lot more about writers, I think, and, and directors and things than maybe than they do. They know performers so much better than I do. They know performers mm-hmm. like encyclopedias. And it's all three of them. You know, mm-hmm. if you sit down with Kevin and, and, and Brian and Kim, Kimberly, they just, they can just rattle off stuff. And I'm just like, all right, how do you keep track of that? Um, and which is partially, I think, because that's just where their brain goes. I'm always much more interested in who wrote it and who directed it than who's in it. Um, it's just always where my brain has gone. So that's where that's the things that I, I remember. Um, but it is funny to be like, I've met so many people doing this, yourself included. Like mm-hmm. it is. And I have so many friends because of doing this, yourself included. And also Aww. people like the Broadwaisted Gang and, and, and Robbie Rizal and, like, and, and Logan Caldwell Block and just people I never would have met if I hadn't started this podcast. And what was so fascinating about all of you is that you were all came to me and were just like we were friends. There was just yeah. never any question about it. Um, we had never met, you know, and but we were friends. And part of that is the sort of false intimacy you get listening to someone on a podcast where you guys, I think, felt like you knew me better than I knew you, which is fine. I'm much more comfortable in that environment than trying to introduce myself to somebody. But then it also is an, another reason I do this podcast is as an excuse to meet people. Because when you when I lived in L.A., I learned that in order to get work, what you do is you call somebody or you email somebody and say, let's go get coffee. And then you sit down and get coffee with them. And then they decide whether they want to hire you or not later. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like a preemptive job interview. With this show, I'm able to 
email you. I mean, you're a perfect example. I emailed you. I I liked you. Uh, Heather Hurley said, you absolutely have to meet Carrie Ginsburg. And I said, great. And then you and I sat down and recorded the show. And recording a podcast is an act of creation. We created something together. And then it was released into the world. And we had this moment that we shared. And only you and I know everything that happened in that recording booth. And then, well, that sounded weird, but that sounded not great. That sounded not great. (laughs) But you and I talked for like two plus hours. We talked for a long time. And that episode's long, but it does not include nearly everything that we talked about. And it, it was that we had a great time. And then I was able to create this other thing from it and share it with people. And people probably emailed you and messaged you and said, hey, that was great. I loved hearing you on the original cast. And then you and I have made something together, much in the same way that. You, when you make a show with somebody, you have a different kind of relationship than people you just know. We made yeah. something together. And that has worked for me with friends. That has worked for me with artistic directors and all kinds of – and directors and other people where it's just like I love to do it when I do a, a play. I love to have the people making the play with me on the show before we go into rehearsal. And then when I get into the rehearsal room, we've hung out. We've had a conversation. We've talked about you and theater and how you love theater. And, and, but also this other thing, this intimate thing that you love, this cast album, this show. And it creates a bond that is just is wonderful. And it's so much fun. And it's something I love. And it's, you know, the chance to share the thing you love with other people is just, you know, is all I love to do is the, what being a writer is, really. And so... The chance to do that, you know, every week or every day now is mm-hmm. uh, is a is wonderful. It's an absolutely wonderful experience. And I'm so happy that I get to do it. Um, what yeah. has surprised you on this journey? That people listen. Not a joke. Um, also not a joke. And to be real for a second, I have frequently thought about stopping because it's a lot of work. And, you know, I look at the terrible thing about working online is you know exactly how many people are listening. You know exactly how many people watch that YouTube video and you know exactly how many people commented and you look at other shows that you listen to that are successful and you're not even a tenth of of the audience that those shows have. And it's discouraging. And every time I've thought about quitting, um, I have set a test for myself where I've been like, well, I wonder, I'll start a Patreon. You know, that was my first thought was after like doing this for almost like two years or whatever it was at that point. I was like, I this isn't growing. It's not changing. So I'll start a Patreon and see if I like, I'm because I was spending money, like see if I can make it revenue neutral. And immediately it was successful. It was an immediate response to the Patreon. People wanted to support the show. And that's a like, oh, that's a great kick in the pants mm-hmm. to be like, this is for free and people are willing to pay for it. That's amazing. That's an amazing mm-hmm. feeling. And then uh, the next thing I thought about quitting, I was like, well, I'll go to New York and start recording episodes. Like, I'll make this more of a business than I was before. And then that took off. And then it's just every t- I've tried to add an element to it to to challenge it a little bit and go like, well, let me try this. And then if this doesn't work, uh, maybe I'll stop. Um I am wearing my original. You are cast wearing your original swag. cast shirt. You are. Yes, it is funny. I will say to which the, I might have forced you into doing because I was like, I like baseball T-shirts. You should make me a shirt. You were on the. You were one of the people on the committee of what I chose to design or not, which was pretty funny. I was like, would you buy this? You're like, yes. Yes, um, I would. And it is. Yeah, but so it is honestly funny to me that 
so shocking, not funny, shocking that people listen, that people are patrons, that people email me and say, I listened and I liked it. People email me and say, I want to do it. Um, all those things are shocking and wonderful to me. It was so funny. It just the other day, um, uh, Teresa Beckhusen uh, is, um, who's a, a journalist and, and is, is on Twitter and is mm-hmm. a big fan of the show, um, mentioned the original cast in a post of hers, which she does all the time. She's lovely. Um, but somebody's like, tell me podcasts to listen to during this difficult time that I aren't saw huge. That. Right. And she wrote original cast, but it might already be huge. <laughs> and I was, it was a moment of being like, well, I'm not huge, but thank you <laughs> for saying that. <laughs> thank you so much for being like, this might already be super famous, but this guy, I'm like, this guy's not super famous, but thank you so much for being, I, I seem to, it has been my experience in my career, um, such as it is, that I generate a small but dedicated group of fans uh-huh. and where that is tricky to navigate when your ego kicks in a little bit, but it is always lovely mm-hmm. to be like, there are people out there who if I stopped doing this would be disappointed. Mm-hmm. And that makes me feel good to be like, people care about what I'm creating. And that is, and it keeps me busy, frankly. It keeps me, keeps me moving, um, You know, which though, is it's, lovely. it's not only about the thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's not only about the podcast. They care about you as well. Yeah. Because like you said, there's an intimacy in sitting across from somebody or Zooming with somebody and talking about things you love. And that becomes your tribe and that becomes your community. But there's so many podcasts that I love listen to yours is at the top of my list um that i feel like i am friends oh, with sure. the host right sure. and so there is there is this relationship that you develop with the stranger mm-hmm. and so if if you were to stop that would feel like a breakup i mm-hmm. think yeah and it would be missed and that's that's lovely it's yeah. a lovely lovely experience you know to, to have that feeling um so what have been some of your favorite moments oh man um you and I talking about Rosalind Russell in the Gypsy movie leaves it foremost of mine. Um, God, that was funny. Uh, the um, let's see, favorite. Mo- well, so the first big moment for me was interviewing Daisy Egan. No, no, yeah. like that was a I cannot believe I'm doing this situation, which was just because. And it was so. It's such a great example of there's no harm in asking. I emailed Hannah Ratner who emailed mm-hmm. um, Amy Killian, who I can name now because she doesn't work there anymore. And um, she got in touch with Daisy and Daisy said yes. And we just did it. And it was a great, like, I'm nobody. You know what I mean? Like I, at that, that point I really wasn't like the show was not, I'm not being modest here. That show was n- very few people were listening at the beginning and she did it and it was great. And it was so much fun. And she was fun to talk to. And it was a real case of like, that's day I'm talking to Daisy Egan. Um, and having to be cool, you know, about it. And I dressed up. I wore like a really nice. So I was teaching also, so I wear like my teaching gear. But I wore like oh, a yes. nice sweater also. And then wait, the red ru- Chuck Taylors? Oh, I always wear my Chucks when I work. Just making sure. Always. And um, 
I wore this, but the sweater was really hot and the air conditioning wasn't working in the room at the time. So I was like so uncomfortable the whole time. And then fun fact I can reveal now, uh, the recording equipment at American didn't work. So I had to use the backup recording for that episode, which nobody ever noticed. Thank God. I've only ever had to do that twice. Um, but it's always why <laughs> it's I use that backup recording. It is two times too many. and It's three times too many almost. Um, but it was a... Uh, it was heartbreaking when the equipment didn't work, and but the backup recording had, and I was like, oh, good, no, it's going to be what it's going to be. And nobody noticed, so that was nice. I've learned that I was right, that I speculated that when I started the show that everybody had a cast album that was theirs and that was um, something that was an important moment in their theater development, and I have yet to encounter someone who that wasn't true for. Um, the closest I came was Chris Stinson, didn't have a cast album, but liked cast albums. He just didn't have one in particular, which is why we ended up doing the real thing. Because I was like, oh, this will be fun. I want to do a play and no one's ever going to pick But that play. is a really interesting take on a cast. That is mm-hmm. a cast album. It is. Yeah. It's a real thing, original cast album. I was so excited to do that. There are six of these and I've wanted, I've been pushing them on people who couldn't pick one. Who were like, mm-hmm. I'm not really into musicals. I'm like, I have these. And they always kind of go, no, never mind. Actually, I like this musical. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Put these six things away again. JK, no one wants to listen to Goodell. It's fine. Yeah. It's one of the six I push. Um, and it is also funny that in the in the, the 100 uh, guests and 218 episodes, we've only ever had five shows repeat. Daisy was the first repeater. She picked Tommy after Eric Messer had already done Tommy. I'm like, well, you've won a Tony, so you can do whatever you want. Absolutely. And you're Daisy Egan, so I'm totally fine with that. Uh, but we've done Rent twice. We've done Secret Garden twice. And we've done Merrily. We roll on twice. And every time we did it the second time was for a very specific reason. You it did like Little Shop twice. Two different versions of Little Shop. That didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't count that. We've done five shows, twice be- with different recordings. We did Superstar. Okay. We've done three versions of Les Mis. Yes. <laughs> I've learned I have nothing more to say about Les Mis. That's um, okay. That's all, fine. All respect to Catherine Riddle, who was a wonderful guest. Halfway through that interview, I was like, I don't like this show anymore. I don't think. Um, but she was great because she'd actually been in it. So that was a great. Like, oh, good. We can mm. talk about something different. Two versions of Little Shop, two versions of Man of La Mancha, neither of which are the original Broadway cast recording. Um, Mm -hmm. And then two versions uh, with this last week of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Are there any cast albums that have not been covered yet that you're surprised haven't come up? Yeah. um, I was surprised it took us that long to get to Songs for a New World. Uh, Sure. I thought that was going to be one of the first ones out of the gate. Um, And I'm really glad it took till Mary Myers to get there because that was one of my favorite episodes is recording. Side note, I cannot listen to I'm Not Afraid the same way anymore. I know. Isn't that fun? No, it's not fun. It destroys me. (laughs) And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you have to go back and listen to that episode because I'm not going to spoil it. Oh, it's such a good. I'm not going to go into it because I go into it there, but it's great. Um, Sorry. Anyway, so totally. songs for New World songs for needed New World, to be Mary. I was, I was shocked that that, that took so long to came up. Um, we have not done as much Sondheim as I thought we would have by this point. We've done um, nine Sondheim recordings, and but a lot of them have been lately. Um, sure. And it was just really funny to me that like my brother and I did uh, Anyone Can Whistle very quickly. Yes. And then Karen Curry did Assassins. Like I say, we did Into the Woods twice, Merrily twice. Um, you and I did Gypsy, Don Mike and I did Do I Hear Waltz, Doug Cohen, who's another person I never would have met except for the fact we did his show on our show and then he got in touch with me. God, that's yeah. amazing. 
did the musical tribute. We've done Sunday now because I forced it. And then Sweeney Todd, like it's just. So you consider Gypsy a, 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 a I mean, we don't have to go back and like relive 2017, but you consider <laughs> Gypsy a Sondheim show? I put it in the category of Sondheim okay. shows. Yeah, because it, it appears on the long the long list. It obviously okay. is not one he wrote the music for, but yeah. Yeah, I put that in there. Okay. Um, yeah, that so was somebody came by and was like, let's do West Side. You'd be like, also Stephen Sondheim. Yeah, I'd put that in the Sondheim list. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Leonard Bernstein may have something I would to say not about that. Put, but I wouldn't put like Candide in the Sondheim list, even though Oof. he like did a rewrite of it. You know, like it's not okay. he he was involved in the creation of that show. And, you know, it's in every Sondheim book. Those those yeah, I put that in there. Um okay. but that surprised me. It surprised me it took so long to get to Superstar. Also, that was another one that like took a while to come up, but then came up very quickly right on top of each other. Took a while to get to Phantom. Um mm. also worth the wait with Angie Perko. Um and but unsurprisingly, it, the first show that we did two different versions of was Les Mis. And that did not surprise me that like Evan said Les Mis and then Liz Maestri said Les Mis, but luckily said, but the London recording, I was like, ooh, fun. Like our first one of these. Um, I would at some point theoretically like to do all five only because Hannah Hessel Ratner has said she'll do the French one with me if we get, if we do the other, the the 10th anniversary album. Yeah. Um, so... I might do that. <laughs> it's just I might do the tenth anniversary of someone just to get Hannah on to talk about the French one, just to wrap it up. Just like let's sure, close, sure. close the door on like this. Is the tenth anniversary one the one that they have the PBS concert mm-hmm. version of? Put With that on the, the Patreon. Hmm, that could be fun. That'd be a fun one. Kelly loves that. That's Kelly's favorite recording. It's my least favorite recording of the of the five of them too. So well, then Kelly I... can host that episode, and you can take a pass. Oh, there you can we have go. a bye week. Okay. Take it off. Yeah. So, are there any other recordings that you you would be excited to that you, that your surprise haven't come up yet? Um, one of the reasons Hamilton hasn't come up is because I won't allow it. I should also say that. Um, Whoa! Why is Hamilton? It's too new. Prohibited. I would also have barred Fun Home. Um, Fun Home would just have come into the okay range. I want it to be at least five years old, hopefully ten years old, because one of the points is that. It's a show that brought you into the theater person that you are today, and that didn't happen four years ago, probably. Like if Claire, if Claire O'Connell had wanted to do Hamilton, that would have been fine with me. She's nine, so like her 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 re, her birth into theater could have absolutely happened four years ago. Um, but like it, it's if you're a theater fan from way back, you've got a more obscure show that you want to do um, that is more personal to you that you have more to say about. Um, also, Ham- there's so much that's been said about Hamilton. Like, we need it'll be ten years before someone would be like, "Oh yeah, tell me about how did that show? He bought the book in the airport. You say interesting, you know? Like, there's only so much. You and can he say. read it on his honeymoon beside right. the pool, right? Do with tell. the pictures. Like, talk more about this, please. Um, we haven't done a what ton you- of Rodgers and Hammerstein. We've done yeah. one. I'm s- I am a little startled at that. We did South Pacific, and that's it. Uh, I'm a little shocked that we haven't done any other Rodgers and Hammerstein. It's so funny. Um, other than that, the, we haven't done Music Man. I'm ready to do that if anyone wants to talk about Music Man. I love the Music Man. Um, we also haven't done West Side, which is a little funny. Um, and there's there's a few big shows we've never done. Um, and uh, I think because of the age of the people who do the show, which tends to skew younger than me, those aren't their shows. That's Light in the Piazza. That's Susicle. Those are the shows we cover, the early 2000s shows, because that's when they were in high school. And then there's like seven shows I never heard of. We had seven Zeitlers in, the, in this whole thing, which has been the most fun <laughs> to get 
to get a show that I had literally never heard of. It's hilarious that on that list is Be More Chill, which like, when we did it was still a show people hadn't heard of. That's true. Um, but yeah, having star mites is great in my in my lexicon. Uh, that's always fun. And Bear with with Kevin Jager. That was a lot. That was a great show to to discover um, yeah. and learn all about. So that's been fun. Expanding my repertoire has been mm-hmm. been very very nice. Mm-hmm. So what's next for the podcast? Uh, well, more of this. It's the the distantly social thing is really like been fun and interesting and weird and stressful and good um, all at the same time. I kind of started it not thinking it through. That was a big like every, my my um my son's teacher likes to describe what we're going through right now as we're building the airplane as we're flying it. And yes. I feel like that's absolutely what I did with this, where I just like jumped off the roof and said, I'll figure it out on the way down. Yeah. Um, Cause I just wanted to do something. I just wanted to talk and I really wanted to talk to, to Kimberly and Jay and, and see how they were doing and, uh, and talk to them and get the word out the people, how people were. And then just sort of decided I was going to do it. I remember that Kelly, when I said, I'm not doing it on Wednesday, I'm going to have to take a day off. Cause I have to take a day off. Um, said, oh, but then the number of episodes won't equal the number of days we've been living this way. And I was like, that's fine. I'm to just add whatever to it. Um, she's such she, an engineer. She is really an engineer. She likes, she's a good, and I will admit at this point, I thought that too. I was like, oh, that would stink. Um, I was originally going to do eight a week. My idea was like, oh, I'll do it because I was going to do, because I started it when Broadway closed. Uh-huh. And so my idea was like, oh, this will be good. Oh. I'll do two on Saturday, two on Wednesday, and nothing on Monday. I'll do eight, just like when they're, sh- and they'll come out at 8 p.m. They'll come out when the show should have gone up. And then that immediately became untenable, like doing the one with Kimberly and Jay and being like, that's not what this is. Which mm-hmm. is the funny thing about actually the podcast is that I didn't know what this podcast was really until Michael Bobbitt and I talked about um once on this island once on this island that was the first episode i did where i went it surprised me um it was a show that i didn't know very well and didn't really love as much as it was the first show i went where i was like i don't know why my guest loves this so much like i don't see what my guest will will love in this mm-hmm. um and then we ended up spending a lot of time talking about racial casting and racially blind casting and the problem and then it was such an interesting discussion and he brought up things i'd never thought about and i said some things that he thought were interesting and editing that episode, I really went, this is what the show is. This is what it should be. We should be talking about what's going on in the theater now in relation to the feelings this show. And then digging in with people about why this show is their favorite show. What is it about this show that makes you go? It's also so funny when people email me and say, I've got like five shows and I can't pick. And I always say, well, just email me what they are and write two sentences about each. And I will, I can pick from that. And they'll write me the thing, and it'll always be like, the first show, 26 sentences. This was the first show I ever heard, and I really loved it. We did it in high school, and I met my boyfriend, and then we broke up, and it was terrible. This huge, long thing. And then the second one will have, like, three sentences. That'll be kind of interesting. And then the last three will just be, like, one line, like, I like this show, and this is fun, too, and this is always one we listen to. I'm like, well, gang, we're doing the first one. (laughs) You picked, yes. Unless it's Les Mis. Right, in which case, we'll move on to the second one. Mm -hmm. Um but I would, you know, even if it, if somebody came to me and was like, I wanted to talk to them and they were ride or die for Les Mis, we'll do Les Mis again. Like it is, I, I, I never, I do, people want to pick different shows is the other thing I found. Like I have a good list now that I email people of like all the shows we've ever done, which is 94 shows we've covered on this show. And 
it's a daunting list to look at, to be honest. And but people want to be unique. They're like, oh, I well, I want to talk about this, but you've already covered that. And I like, well, what's your like when Al Silber did Secret Garden? She's like, we've already done Secret Garden. I said, well, we did it three years ago. Like, what do you? Why do you want to talk about Secret Garden? And she told me, I was like, oh no, we're talking about Secret Garden. Never mind. Oh, yes. like, we're we're you, we can do it. It's it's also if it's a show that's got enough to sustain another episode. Like, I don't know that I'd do another Phantom. Um, not only because because Angie and I like went nuts on it, but also because it doesn't warrant much more discussion. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, but there's endless things to say about some of these shows that mean different things to different people, you know, over and over again. I do Ren a third time. God help me. (laughs) Uh, I would like to do more Pulitzer Prize winning musicals. We've done five of them. There's four others out there. If anyone wants to talk about, we can't do Hamilton, but if anyone wants to talk about Of The I Sing. Fiorello. Oh God, that's such a terrible show. (laughs) I believe you had an intermission about this very early on, right? Well, yeah, there's a whole intermission about Pulitzer Prize winning Yes. Musicals, which I might revive <laughs> for one of these daily socials if I ever get behind the eight ball. <laughs> I might just toss it back out there for everybody. There are Fair two, because that's what I, th- I kind of thought that was going to be something I did more of. Um, the intermissions? Well, the intermissions that were more curated, because I did two early on. One was about Ham- the Pulitzer Prize, which I actually had to record two versions of because I was recording at the American University studio and the episode was scheduled to be edited after the Pulitzers were announced, but had to be recorded before. So I had to record oh. sections of it that included that Hamilton didn't win and how surprising that was. So it was like, cause it was all the same stuff. I'd be like, and Hamilton didn't win, which was surprising because, and then it's the part mm. you heard about all of the things that it encompasses. Um, and luckily it did win. And, and the episode came out the way it should have. Um, but I also did one early on mainly because I needed content uh, because if you haven't recorded a lot of episodes, you don't have a lot of deleted scenes to put into intermissions. Right. Um, th- uh, on the song "The Lady's Got Potential" from Evita, just because a fun fact thing, oh, yeah. which I also might revive for a distantly social. That'd be a good distantly social too, because um, it was just a fun fact about that song that I really, really liked. And I thought I'd do more of that. I thought I would just be like, "Oh, I'll talk about." This cuts, like I had a couple other ideas of talking about cut songs, especially, mm-hmm. which I love to talk about. And I just record a little self-produced intermission about a cut song. And I just never did it. I never had to. I never had a hole in the content for the intermissions. I always had great stuff. Is there anything else, any final thoughts about the podcast or podcasting or fun home um, that you would like to say? Thank you for listening. It's an honest, like... It's a really it blows me away that people listen and all the wonderful friends I've made. I could I couldn't begin to list everybody who I've I've met doing this and how important they are. They all are in my life, um, which has been I mean, you know, Doug Cohen, who I know is listening, was an amazing experience of like doing his show and then having him reach out and be like, hey, you did my show. Thank you. And then emailing me later and being like, hey, this is a good podcast like that. That'll that'll get you through your life. Um, and, uh, it has just been, it's been so much fun. It continues to be so much fun. And I, I do get, you know, candidly in the dumps about it in the way that like, I think anybody does who does anything creative every now and again, you know, if you're a writer or you're actor or whatever, like it just feels like, uh, it, it, it just isn't working for a period of time. And every time that happens, everyone who's listening digs me out of it without being me asking to, I never have to ask. Somebody will reach out. Somebody will tweet something lovely. I'll get a new patron. I'll get a new comment on the Apple podcast. I'll get the download numbers will go up for no apparent reason. Like that's always a like, geez, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it's just lovely. It's absolutely lovely. It's so much fun to make the show. It's so much fun to do the show. And uh, thank you for listening. And let's do God, 218 more episodes. That sounds like a lot, but we'll see. Who knows? Maybe. The original cast is produced and edited by you, Patrick Flynn. The original cast is on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at original cast pod you can follow patrick on all platforms at unknown penguin where can people follow carrie ginsburg uh this isn't about me patrick oh i'm sorry okay at carrie ginsburg on most platforms if you're enjoying yourself you should leave a rating and a review on apple podcasts and tell the world because this is a good show you can also find the original cast on spotify overcast stitcher and wherever fine podcasts are available my thanks to patrick flynn for talking with me i'm carrie ginsburg and i can't i have quarantined rehearsal are you recording I am recording. I just feel like you're going to judge me because you do this all the time. <laughs> I, Carrie, honestly will not judge you. Because <laughs> every time I do it, I don't think I know what I'm doing. So don't worry about it.